Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And we are very excited to be doing a novel, and it is a Poirot novel, and it is Cards on the Table. Cards on the Table. Let's talk really briefly about the publication history because it is pretty straightforward. This novel was first published on November 2nd, 1936 by the Collins Crime Club in the UK, and one year later in 1937 by Dodd Mead in the US. Let's jump right in and talk about our victim, Catherine. Well, there's more than one victim. Oh, and how. And how. <laughs> there's really only one victim that we can talk about up front, however. Right. That's uh, Mr. Shaitana, and he's an incredibly rich collector, and he throws a very fine party, and he rubs many people the very wrong way, and he's exotic, quote-unquote, kind of, and Mephistophelian, which is uh, a word... Man, it gets used a lot in this story. Sure does. He's stabbed to death with a jeweled stiletto at his own dinner party. As we are told three pages into the novel, every healthy Englishman longed to kick him, which (laughs) happens to be the first part of the title of an article friend of the podcast, Dr. Jamie Bernthal, wrote. Uh, The full title of that article is, Every healthy Englishman longed to kick him, masculinity and nationalism in Agatha Christie's cards on the table. And that features prominently in his book, which we have recommended before and will recommend again, queering Agatha Christie. And believe me, if you are going to do a queer theory analysis on the works of Agatha Christie, boy, are you going to want to do a lot of analysis of Mr. Shaitana in particular. Right. Let's move on and get to our list of suspects. And I have to say, normally, when Catherine and I are about to begin a list of suspects for a Christie novel, we bemoan slash celebrate the fact that that list of suspects is quite long and it's often every major character in the book, but this is a very different case for a Christie novel. This is an outlier, and it goes a long way to the significance of this novel in particular. So here we have just four suspects in the entire novel that is stated at the outset by Christie, and it is quite unusual. I believe that this is the smallest list of suspects that we have for any Christie novel. Our first suspect here is Dr. Jeffrey Roberts, who is a well-to-do physician, highly recommended among the posh set, and a keen bridge player, which is something that all four of these suspects will have in common. Yeah, just keep that in mind. Uh, So next up, we have Mrs. Lorimer, and she's a widow in her 60s, and she's very well off, and she's extremely intelligent. And by all appearances, she's like pretty much like a bridge guru. The lady knows bridge better than anyone. Yeah, Mrs. Lorimer is kind of a Rain Man-esque bridge player. Toothpicks. He needs some toothpicks. Can we just get him some toothpicks over here? Another check. Sorry about the toothpicks. 82, 82, 82. 82 what? How much is this? Toothpicks. It's a lot more than 82 toothpicks, right? 246 total. The change. Right. How many toothpicks are you? 250. Pretty close. Come on, let's go, Ray. 246. There's four left in the box. She <laughs> has an almost idiot savant quality to her bridge playing, which will right. uh, be a significant later on. Right. 
Then we have Anne Meredith, who is a lovely young thing of 25, timid, not very well to do, but quite nicely dressed. Right. And then we have Major Despard, who is tan, and I'm not sure if he's blue-eyed, but I'm oh, man. just going to... The important thing is he's tan. Yes, he is apparently a dreamboat, and he's a gallant, and he's a man of the world, and of the jungles, and England is lucky to have him. Yeah, I would say that Major Despard is a Colonel Race-like character, and I, in fact, am going to say it. The only issue is that Colonel Race happens to appear in this novel <laughs> as well, so that's a little awkward and something that we will also discuss. Right, and like suffice it to say, Colonel Race feels pretty strongly about standing up for Major Despard. Probably because it's because his double. Because they are literally the same character. Yes, it's kind of like the Nellie is Heathcliff moment. You know, <laughs> I am you, but they really are the same person. This is literal. Nellie, I am Heathcliff. All right, let's jump right into the world as it appears to be here. When we open on this novel, we open on Monsieur Poirot. Hooray, a Poirot novel where Poirot is right there on page one, and he's taking a little night off crime solving where he runs into an acquaintance, Mr. Shaitana, and Mr. Shaitana is immediately sinister and a bit of a creep. He hints to Poirot that he has other collections that would be more relevant to Poirot's interest, which Poirot takes to mean a quote-unquote black museum, i.e. a museum with crime artifacts. There are uh, are several of those around the world, including in Los Angeles. Shout out to the Museum of Death. I've been there many a time. <laughs> but what Shaitana actually means is people. He wants to collect a literal murderer's row of uncaught criminals, and he'd like Poirot to join him for a dinner he's setting. And Poirot reluctantly, very reluctantly, agrees to attend this dinner. Right. Poirot is not at all amused by this little exercise, but he is going to go along with it because he is curious. Cut to the next week when Poirot, you know, as he said, shows up at Shaitana's very fancy digs to have this mysterious dinner. And quickly he realizes that something is up because he recognizes three of the other guests. And they are Mrs. Ariadne Oliver. Woohoo! <laughs> I know. We're so excited. A world-famous crime writer of both mystery novels and essays, an ardent feminist. Ardent feminist. And we have Colonel Race, who we've just mentioned, and who we, of course, know from none other than the man in the brown suit. Got a name check it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and he's briefly back in England. And we have none other than Superintendent Battle boo of Scotland his. Yard. Who, uh, I mean, I don't think we boo his Superintendent Battle himself so much as his previous true, appearances. True. And to give Superintendent Battle his due, he's actually quite good in this novel. I quite enjoyed him. He's quite good in this book. Yeah, so they're joined by the four aforementioned suspects. And so Poirot pretty much immediately looks at this situation as like, uh-oh. We have a living black museum. Essentially, they're four sleuths, four criminals, and Shaitana. Right. So they have a rather uncomfortable dinner together, after which Shaitana insists that everyone play bridge, the sleuths all in one room, the criminals in another. Mm -hmm. And after several rubbers of bridge, Race and Poirot decide to call it a night, and they head out. As they go to say goodbye to their host, Shaitana, they realize that, oops, he dead. <laughs> he is very dead, very stabbed with an embellished stiletto that was clearly from his own collection. 
battle conveniently is there. So he calls the authorities and then they aggressively prevent anybody from touching the body. Roberts immediately, of course, runs over because he's a doctor and like, oh, maybe he's not actually dead. But they're pretty good about controlling the crime scene. Given that they know that obviously none of the quote unquote sleuths killed him and that no one entered or exited the house, that means that one of the four people in the other room has to clearly be guilty of stabbing the guy. Right. This isn't so much a locked room mystery as a no one left the room mystery. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and so Battle, Battle is essentially given authority over the investigation and then he, in a kind of a bemused way, I suppose, he loops in his fellow bridge mates for help. The immediate anomaly in this really is Mrs. Oliver. And, of course, Mrs. Oliver tells everybody amongst the sleuths that, well, obviously Dr. Roberts is guilty and that if women were in charge of Scotland Yard, there wouldn't be such hang-ups and investigations because intuition would solve the case every time. Oh, man. This could be over so quickly if you just listened to her women's intuition. And, of course, you know, all the men just, like, side-eye her. Yeah, Mrs. Oliver might be one of the only feminists that I've come across, fictional or otherwise, who goes on and on about feminine intuition as her means of promoting the cause of women. I don't think she's doing anyone any favors here. (laughs) Oh, Mrs. Oliver. Oh, Mrs. Oliver. So then each of the four suspects gets interviewed and naturally each of them denies being the murderer. We do find out their movements in the room and it's all a little bit the same. So basically the two men get up either just stoke the fire or refresh drinks. Mrs. Lorimer also gets up to, I think, stoke the fire, but basically she was just really, really aggressively playing bridge. And Anne gets up once to apparently look at everyone's cards and I guess she maybe wanders from the table, but she also kind of seems to not remember her movements. We do also find out that evening each of the suspects' reactions to who else might have done it, and they kind of break down according to gender stereotypes in that the men each suspect the other man. Right. And then the women both refuse to say who they think did it. Mrs. Lorimer, because she says it's not proper, and Anne Meredith just dithers and says she doesn't want to accuse anyone. And that's where we end up at the end of the evening in which this murder occurs. And we should probably pause for a second and just note this curious foreword that appears at the beginning of the novel because... Christy directly tells the reader in this foreword that there are no tricks here. Yes, she does. In this novel, that this is actually a straightforward mystery in which there are four suspects and one of those suspects absolutely did it. And it's a really charming foreword. The foreword's actually really excellent. She speaks directly to the reader and lets them know, and probably because without that foreword, people would be thinking maybe this was another Roger Ackroyd sort of trick that she had up her sleeve, but no... She insists uh, that, you know, it's going to be one of the four suspects. And in fact, it is. And I have to say the charming voice reminded me, Catherine, of Christie's autobiography, which, of course, was just a delight to me. It was like finding a fragment of Dead Sea Scroll or a Shakespeare play Lost to the World since I finished the autobiography so long ago now. But I know. It was just like you just felt like a giddy thrill, like roll up your spine. It really is charming. And it does let us know that this murder mystery is straightforward in terms of the mechanics of it. It's just the mystery really lies in the psychology of everything. 
My favorite thing is the final paragraph, which I just think is worth calling out, says, I may say, as an additional argument in favor of this story, that it was one of Hercule Poirot's favorite cases. His friend, Captain Hastings, however, when Poirot described it to him, considered it very dull. I wonder with which of them my readers will agree. I know, and poor Hastings, he's getting shaded (laughs) even in a book in which he doesn't appear. No, he's not even in it, and it's just like, she's giving him side eye, and he's not even in the story. (laughs) Poor Hastings. Oh, Hastings. (laughs) So, without having any actual clues to go on, Mm -hmm. each member of the sleuthing party heads out to do some investigating of their own, namely to find out what, if anything, was in the suspect's past that made them vulnerable to what was essentially a blackmail game being played by this Mephistopheles Shaitana. Basically for his own amusement. He's not blackmailing them for money. He's blackmailing them as a game. Right, because he is Mephistopheles. (laughs) He is. So, Battle immediately looks into Dr. Roberts, who is very open with him and friendly and allows him free access to his papers and his office. He kind of tricks Dr. Robert's secretary into giving him some information. And that's partially the names of a few cases. One is a woman who's pretty much clearly a, a hypochondriac, but the other case involves a couple by the name of Craddock. The secretary kind of just gives hints, but basically enough hints that Battle then sends one of his detectives undercover. A junior sergeant of his named Sergeant O'Connor, who is, and now I'm quoting here from the book, unkindly nicknamed by his colleagues at the yard, the maid servant's prayer. And I'll continue for a second. There was no doubt that he was an extremely handsome man, tall, erect, broad-shouldered. It was less the regularity of his features than the roguish and daredevil spark in his eye, which made him so irresistible to the fair sex. (laughs) So basically by being really attractive. He brings this woman to the theater and pumps her for information about the Craddock case quite successfully. It was their former parlor maid who tells him everything. Right. Turns out that there's a husband and a wife, and the husband mysteriously died of an anthrax-tainted shaving kit. And then shortly thereafter, his wife runs off to Egypt, where she then abruptly dies of blood poisoning of some kind. But, you know, the one thing that you should note is that she was inoculated by Dr. Roberts before her adventure to Egypt. So, speaking of handsome men, Colonel Race uses his contacts to find out about Major Despard. Several years before, he was apparently an expedition leader for a Professor Luxmore in the Amazon who was traveling along with his wife. Luxmore did not come back out of the Amazon. Supposedly, he succumbed to a virulent illness, a quote-unquote jungle fever. Rumor had it, however, that Despard had actually shot him, perhaps in a dispute over Mrs. Luxmore. On top of this, Despard also aggressively lawyers up and then brings the lawyer on board to to also help Anne Meredith, who it appears he may have a thing for. And then speaking of Anne Meredith, our dear Mrs. Oliver immediately goes off to find Anne. That's like her first order of business. She brings her bag of apples <laughs> and drives off to go find this country cottage where Anne lives with her, I guess, relatively well-off roommate and the owner of the cottage, uh, Rhoda Dawes. Rhoda reminded me of Lady Frances Derwent, a.k.a. Frankie of Why Didn't They Ask Evans fame. E? Sure. Another, another sort of pert and chipper young woman of Christie's creation. But she's very polite. That's True. also, there's a real point made of like what a nice, polite lady Rhoda is. Anyway, Anne went to school with Rhoda. Anne doesn't have a job. And so Anne ends up moving in Rhoda because Rhoda doesn't want to live alone. So... (sighs) 
Mrs. Oliver, she wants Anne to blame Dr. Roberts immediately. Basically, like, we girls have to stick together. But Anne's not having any of it. Instead, she basically flips out on Mrs. Oliver. She's really agitated and aggressive and a little hostile. You know, Mrs. Oliver leaves, but as she's heading out, Rhoda runs after her because Rhoda is starstruck. Rhoda is like, oh my gosh, you are the famous Ariadne Oliver, and I am so excited to meet you. And so she um, is also, again, being polite, horrified at Anne's behavior, and so she asks Ariadne if she could please um, take her up on the offer to visit her in London. So she does. So what happens in Gember? Well, first of all, whenever I hear the name Rhoda, I just can't help thinking of the Rhoda of Mary Tyler Moore. Mary Tyler Moore? Yeah, for sure. Especially since that Rhoda was a roommate? No, Rhoda lives upstairs. Rhoda lives in the attic apartment in the house. Okay, so she's a housemate of Mary Tyler Moore. So it was not only the name Rhoda, but also the fact that they lived together that was just really hitting that point home very hard. Rhoda lives in the attic in the house that Phyllis owns. Phyllis and her husband own the house and so mary lives in the apartment on the second floor and then rhoda lives in the third floor attic apartment i just saw firemen coming down the stairs yeah well phyllis there's been a fire a fire how bad where, where was oh, it it was in rhoda's apartment i might have known <laughs> oh don't worry about me phyllis i'm perfectly fine so in any case rhoda goes up to london and visits Mrs. Oliver, takes her up on that offer to visit her idol, this novelist. And this is one of the more delightful sequences within the book because this is where Christy is poking fun at herself and Christy is a master at self-deprecating humor because Mrs. Oliver spends a number of pages talking about the challenges, shall we say, of being a mystery writer. Her room is a mess. She doesn't necessarily seem to have a great process. The other thing, I just I just want to interrupt. The other thing that I love is that Mrs. Oliver apparently is known for her uh, change-ups and hair. Yes. And one of the issues that she keeps having over the course of the entire novel is that she keeps forgetting that she has a fringe <laughs> or bangs. And so she keeps like trying to like mess with her hair or push her hair out of her face, but forgetting that she has bangs, they just keep like yeah, sticking up. Yeah, it's true. And it's funny because my image of Ariadne Oliver in my head, I think I didn't realize until rereading this novel for the podcast was really Zoe Wanamaker from the Suchet series who does not match the description sure. of Ariadne Oliver in the novels who were supposed to I think picture as a rather handsome and larger woman I believe at one point a character even calls her fat in the novel although I don't think that that opinion is necessarily to be trusted but in any case I know it's so offensive because you know because the book doesn't refer to her no, as fat no I don't so. think we're supposed to believe that she's fat she is a handsome woman well, she's also, she's being compared at some level to the 25-year-old girl. Right, she's bigger compared to the slip of a thing of Anne Meredith, but not a large woman objectively. In any case, Rhoda says that she wants to explain why Anne was behaving so oddly when Mrs. Oliver visited them. And she says the reason why is that Mrs. Oliver had mentioned something that Shaitana had said about a case of poisoning when they were at that dinner. And it turns out that Anne 
had actually not previously disclosed this brief employment that she had with an older woman who died when she accidentally swallowed, I believe it was hat paint, not the syrup of figs tonic that the old woman thought it was when she downed the bottle in the middle of the night. It was this bottle of hat paint that Anne Meredith had put into a bottle of syrup of figs, totally under the supervision of this woman. She wasn't doing anything in secret. Anne says she doesn't feel like she has to disclose it because it was such a brief employment and not important, but this doesn't really sit well with Rhoda. And even though she says she's coming merely to explain Anne's rude behavior, Mrs. Oliver knows what she's doing here, which is disclosing information that she's not comfortable remaining secret. Rhoda perhaps doesn't totally trust her dear friend Anne as much as she claims to. So then after this, as Rhoda's leaving, Anne spies Rhoda leaving Mrs. Oliver's flat. Yeah. And I mean, we get the sense, it's not actually directly said, but we get the pretty much clear sense that Anne's following Rhoda. Right. At the same time, she's confronted by Mrs. Lorimer, who is leaving an appointment on dun-dun-dun Harley Street. Mm. And who tends to Mm. work on Harley Street, Catherine? Might it be doctors? It might be doctors. So perhaps Mrs. Lorimer is ill. Let's talk about Mrs. Lorimer. Yeah, so she's um, left to Poirot, and Poirot, from the get-go, from the get-go at Shaitana's, he really respects her, and he makes it very clear that he really respects her. She also doesn't really have an obvious hint of a crime in her background, other than the fact that she is a widow. She doesn't really notice the details of the room or have a real memory of that, so Poirot really spends all of his time discussing the mechanics of bridge. And he has taken the scorecards for the bridge game. And so when he gives them to her, this is what Kemper was referring to as the Rain Man moment. (laughs) A2, A2, A2. Where she basically reconstructs the game for him, hand by hand. Yeah, I mean, each card... Okay, so it's time to talk about the world as it actually is. And as we've mentioned, this is really an interesting one because we don't really have clues the way that we normally have clues in these novels. Often in Poirot novels, Monsieur Poirot will go on and on about the importance of psychology. For him, that is perhaps the most important element in solving a crime. But it's really never more so the case than in this novel because everything boils down to psychology. And I think you could make an argument that psychology is important in most Christie novels and certainly in most of the Poirot novels, but it doesn't have the paramount importance, the uber importance that it has here, where it really is the entire case. It might be that perhaps psychology allows Poirot to solve the cases in other books, but we as a reader, so we as somebody outside of the book, are usually given actual clues versus this. Right. So we are going to go through a number of clues now, but just keep in mind that these are clues that all boil down to psychology. So clue number one, which has to do with the bridge scorecard. The scorecard. As per usual, if something is printed out in a Christie novel... Yeah, it's even printed on two pages here. It's basically a centerfold. Yep, it is. (laughs) It's totally a centerfold. You should pay attention to it. So we have the four suspects scorecard. It shows the scores of the first three full rubbers and then the interrupted fourth. What is the deduction here? Well, Poirot fixates on it immediately. And we're going to do this, I think, in a few parts. 
So bear with us for a second. But he fixates only on two things, the scorecard and then the narrative descriptions of the room that the bridge was being played in. And he focuses on both of those things in relation to one another. So to tackle quickly the descriptions of the room, Dr. Roberts is completely detail-oriented in talking about all the knickknacks. So he can, like, catalog all of the sort of, like, antiques and the museum pieces and every single little item and the um, prints on the walls. And so he gives in detail all of that information to the sleuths. He is keenly observant as to the room around him. Major Despard notices some of it, but primarily what he notices are, like, the best or the most exotic elements. For example, he knows the exact provenance of the Persian rugs. He only notices those things that are interesting to him. Correct. Unlike Dr. Roberts, who is just a keen observer in general. And um, Miss Meredith is just really mediocre, (laughs) just in general. Basic. And then Mrs. Lorimer basically only notices the game of bridge. Right. She is bridge rain woman. 246. So I would say that clue number two is part two of the first clue. (laughs) Absolutely. Back to the scorecard. So this is, again, it's a twofold question. Do you notice the room? What did you notice in the room? And then what did you notice about how the game was played? We learn in detail, basically, from each of the four suspects how the other players played the game. And so these things are mirrored from their depictions of the room in some way, right? So Major Despard is perfectly good, but he sort of seems like moderately disinterested. Miss Meredith is meek. Uh, and she's basic. sort of <laughs> she's basic here too, <laughs> and she doesn't make aggressive enough moves. Right, Mrs. Lorimer is a nearly perfect player. She's brilliant, and she is precise and methodical, detail oriented. Right, she plans all of her moves ahead. Right, and Doctor Roberts is a very very good player, but he overcalls. He is a bold, audacious, seat of his pants player. So clue number three is also related to these first two clues. We could really more properly term it part three of clue number one. Clue number one. (laughs) That's the only clue. Well, and again, it's because these three clues all have to do with psychology. So they're all centered on the same issue, which is the psychology of these people. And I would say that clue one has to do with their ability to observe in general. Clue number two has to do with their method of bridge playing. And clue number three... Three has to do with their method of murdering. Right. Because we are, again, told, given the fact that Mr. Shaitana invited these four people to the bridge game in the first place, that these four people are murderers. And then we find out via their backstories the murders that they may or may not have committed. We are actually told by way of Mr. Poirot, so this is a source that we should trust within the book, that it's most likely the case that three out of four of these people are in fact murderers and did commit those murders that were told about in backstories. So even though they are probably not all four of them murderers, and in fact it is the case that only three out of four of them did commit these murders that they Mm -hmm. are accused of within the course of the story, the 
ways that those murders were committed is also telling as to whether or not that is the kind of person who would have committed the murder of Shaitana, the murder that we are most centrally concerned with. So just going over them again really quickly, we have Dr. Roberts, who was supposedly confronted by the husband of the woman that he was having an affair with. And right at the end of this argument within his client's house, he went into the bathroom and sprinkled anthrax onto this man's razor, thereby killing him. That is a very bold, audacious crime. That sort of seat of your pants, off the cuff kind of thing to do, which goes hand in hand with the kind of bridge player that Dr. Roberts is. Then we have Anne Meredith, whose crime was a hopeful crime, sort of an optimistic crime. If she really did intend for her employer to drink that hat paint within that bottle that was, you know, labeled as a tonic, she didn't know if that would actually come off. If it did happen, she she basically got lucky. So that also kind of goes hand in hand with the sort of bridge player she is and the kind of basic person that she is in general. Mrs. Lorimer, interestingly, we don't know anything about her past crime because she refuses to talk about it. And that's something that Poirot actually also deeply respects. He says that most people would feel the need to justify their past crimes if they had committed them. We do know that her husband died, so we assume that the murder that she had committed was uh, a murder of her husband. And we, we basically get confirmation of this by the end of the novel, but we know nothing about it, so we can't really draw any conclusions there. And then we have Major Despard, who, you know, when he explains what happened, he says that he had actually been trying to shoot this husband. This is another husband-wife pair in the jungle. He had been trying to shoot him in the foot to keep him from going into the river in his feverish haze and that this silly wife thought that he was trying to shoot the husband for her sake and she moved the gun at the last minute and it accidentally shot him in the back. And we are eventually told by the end of the novel that Major Despard's account is the correct one. So he did not actually commit a murder. He is the one in four who was not a murderer in the past. And if we look at that, there is certainly one person out of those four whose psychology as a bridge player, as a murderer, and even as an observer of general details and that he is a master at observing everything around him lines up with the kind of person who would have been able to successfully pull off the murder of Mr. Shaitana. And we will get to that in a second. But first, let's discuss our fourth and final clue, which does not have anything to do with psychology, but is instead all about the mechanics of bridge. We will both apologize to our listeners who are bridge players because neither Kemper nor I know the first thing about bridge. So reading some of this book was a little bit like reading Latin. So bear with us. But basically, here's the thing. You can't get up from the table unless you are dummy. And so to the best of my understanding, dummy is essentially if you are the dominant hand in the bridge game because bridge is played in pairs. So you have then one half of the pair is in dictate the game order and then that partner of the dominant player puts all their cards face up on the table and essentially they don't have anything to do for that entire hand basically you can wander away and refresh your sherry yes and this is what monsieur poro says about that i noticed at once in the third rubber the figure of 1500 above the line that figure could only represent one thing a call of grand slam so a massive score and he goes on a little later 
It stands to reason that during an interesting or an exciting hand, the attention of the three players will be wholly on the game, whereas during a dull hand, they were more likely to be looking about them. It was then a distinct possibility that the murder was committed during this particular hand, and I determined to find out, if I could, exactly how the bidding had gone. I soon discovered that dummy during this particular hand had been... Da-da-da! Dr. Roberts. And that is, in fact our murderer with this logistical clue in addition to the three psychology-based clues that we just went through, all of which really do point to Dr. Roberts as opposed to any of the other three players. Unfortunately, Catherine and I are both poker players, not bridge players, as so many people are these days. I have to think that one of the reasons why poker has gotten so much more popular than bridge is that the multiples of people playing poker are much more flexible than in bridge. In bridge, you have to have multiples of four, whereas in poker, you know, you can pretty much go anywhere from five till infinity. So it's just easier to organize poker parties as opposed to bridge gatherings, sadly. If you told me that you had to go to like your Tuesday night bridge game, I would find that a little curious. By the way, the motive for Anne Meredith's murder of her boss is behind another rather delightful sequence within the novel in which Mr. Poirot goes and buys 19, yes, 19 pairs of expensive French silk stockings and then has Anne Meredith and Rhoda Dawes over for a little interview and he tricks Anne Meredith into stealing two of those silk stockings. He tells her that he is making a present of a half dozen or so. He makes it clear that he doesn't know exactly how many pairs he has and he asks her to go off on her own and choose what she thinks are the best colors and he counts them up after she has spent some time with them and sees that there are two pairs missing. So he does this because he had suspected that she was in fact a petty thief and he surmises from there that she must have stolen from her employer. Her employer must have caught her in the act and either been about to expose her or holding it over her head, what have you, which is why Anne wanted to do away with her with the hat paint in the tonic bottle. We then also have a really interesting sequence between Monsieur Poirot and Mrs. Lorimer. Basically, she decides to confess to him because why not? She says that she can't live with the fact that three other innocent people are going to be blamed for Shaitana's death. She did it. She stabbed him during her dummy turn, and it's because she poisoned her late husband, and she knew Shaitana was going to bring it out, even though she refuses to talk about that poisoning. And Poirot is befuddled for a moment, and I believe he even references the chocolate box case. He says there was a time, I think it's 28 years earlier. That's how he references it in the novel. There was a time 28 years ago when I was wrong, but no, I am never wrong. And he pushes her on it and pushes her on it. And finally, we find out that she didn't actually do it. She's just dying. That's why she was in Harley Street before. And she is covering for Anne Meredith, who she she says she saw commit the murder. You know, all she actually saw, we find out, is that Anne Meredith touched Shaitana and recoiled in horror. And she misinterpreted that as Anne Meredith killing Shaitana. And I have to say, I find that to be a little bit unconvincing. It's, a, I think, a rare weak link within the novel because I think that Mrs. Lorimer is the kind of person who would not believe that Anne Meredith had killed Shaitana unless she had truly seen Anne Meredith stick that stiletto in, not just the aftermath of it. But in any case, she thinks that Anne is guilty. She wants Anne to be able to lead a full life. But now Monsieur Poirot knows what happened and he leaves, but not before seeing Anne or someone who looks like Anne sneaking into the house in the shadows. And Poirot's perturbed 
worked. Although this is also another odd beat, I will say, because he has been perturbed by the entire thing with Mrs. Lorimer. The entire conversation with her has thrown him a little bit. And the fact then that he thinks that he sees Anne Meredith going into the house in the dark of night, you would think that he would have turned around. Things kind of fall apart within the last section of the book here in more ways than one. Shortly thereafter, in fact, the very next day, Poirot and Battle are alerted that Mrs. Lorimer is found dead. Poirot and Battle show up and she looks like she died in her sleep. She's a slightly bruised arm. It's the only thing other than that, you know, looks like she basically took an overdose of sleeping drops. A dose of Veronal. We saw that in Lord Edgeware Dies. Shout out to Carlotta Adams. Um, not only that, but she sent three letters, uh, one to Anne, one to Major Despard, one to Dr. Roberts, confessing her guilt. Dr. Roberts himself rushes to her house upon notice of the letter. He has it in his hand, and he goes in and tries to revive her, but he says that she is already deceased. Then, back in the country, back at Anne and Rhoda's... Oh, don't worry about me, Philip. I'm perfectly fine. Rhoda is grilling Anne about coming clean about her time with her previous employer who died from the hat paint, but Anne gets increasingly annoyed with her and says, hey, let's go for a boat ride. That seems like a really good idea with somebody who's, like, enraged at you who you have just accused of murder. So, uh, conveniently, Poirot and Battle have both shown up at basically this exact same moment looking for them. They find them down on the river, and they happen to see that the two young ladies are, like, tussling in the punt, right? And Anne basically knocks Rhoda over the side of the boat. And then double conveniently, who should show up as well but Major Despard, (laughs) who is faced with that age-old hypothetical of two people drowning, which one do you choose? And it's really played that way in the novel. Is he going to go to Anne or is he going to go to Rhoda? I know, like, ooh, it's like The Bachelor. Will you accept the truth? 100%. All right. Thank you. Thank you. There's been a lot of back and forth between these two ladies. They both obviously are holding a flame for this handsome, tanned man. And he chooses Rhoda, not Anne. And then Anne dies. Rhoda is saved and Anne drowns. <laughs> Fun! <laughs> and we are led to believe at this point, given that we've just seen her attempt a murder, that Anne was the killer. Except, I don't even think we have to be a particularly astute reader to realize that, given the fact that there are about 15 pages left in the novel, <laughs> that there's right. going to be an extra twist and Anne wasn't the killer. There's just too much focus on Anne toward the end for it to simply be her. So <laughs> Right, unless, unless we're going to have like some lovers matches for like, you know, 15 pages which, you know, is not out of the question. It has happened before. The ending, you know, the last fifth, I'd say, of this book is a bit messy and not... Slightly too long. ...quite up to the standard of the rest of it. So just to wrap everything up here, it was Dr. Roberts. He poisoned that husband with anthrax on the razor. He poisoned the wife he was having the affair with who had become troublesome when he uh, gave her the inoculation to travel to Egypt. He stabbed Shaitana with the jewel dagger in the middle of that exciting bridge rubber. Right. And on top of that, he also killed Mrs. Lorimer by injecting her with poison when she was under the influence of a mere sleeping draught. She did not commit suicide because those letters were written by him. He is also a forger. And he was the one who forged, forged suicide yeah. notes. And this is actually pretty Overcall. ingenious. When he ran in holding one of those notes saying, I just, got, I just got this note. He, of course, sent the other two. And then he had his own note. And he ran into 
to Mrs. Lorimer and injected her with Veronal, thereby killing her. And here is where there's also a, I, I think, rather silly beat in which Poirot brings in a man who claims he was a window washer who just happened to be outside Mrs. Lorimer's window when Dr. Roberts rushed in and who saw <laughs> the injection of poison and saw the whole thing. We learn after Dr. Roberts confesses that this man was in fact a hired actor and that Poirot perhaps was overplaying his hand in a Dr. Roberts-like way. But and Poirot gave, you know, a struggling actor some much-needed work. <laughs> it all works out and it's a short sequence and we thereby have our ironclad resolution. So let's talk about the, the adaptation. adaptation. Yeah, we have one adaptation for this one, which is within the Suchet series. This aired in 2010. So this is one of the later, rather more dour Poirot episodes. It's I, um, I thought it was fine. You didn't like it, though. It's not terrible. I mean, it stars some fantastic actors, including Leslie Manville, current Academy Award right. nominee, as well as Alex Jennings, who played Uncle, da- Uncle yes, David from The Crown. And also Prince Charles in The Queen. Not confusing at all. <laughs> it's not weird at all. David Suchet actually highlighted him as one of the better actors that he worked with within the series in his book. Suchet also made a point of talking about what a pleasure it was working with Zoe Wanamaker, who makes her first appearance in this episode as Ariadne Oliver. She would go on to feature in many episodes. They had known each other for years at that point and were great friends. And I think you can really see that within the portrayal of their friendship on the screen. So there's a lot to like in this episode, but there's also a lot not to like. And as is so often the case, I think the best way to explain what I mean here is to quote from our good friend, Mark Aldridge and his book, Agatha Christie on screen. And here's what he says. The final revelation that a gay relationship formed the motivation for a murder, something that is not the case in the novel, demonstrates a worrying movement of the series towards Marple's oddly juvenile obsession with homosexuality as either red herring or motivation. And what he's referring to there is Agatha Christie's Marple, which also oh, sometimes would... Man, that is hard, harsh criticism. ...add a, a gay storyline that did not exist within the Christie novels. And if that were being done for an interesting reason, for a provocative reason, or simply just being done well, of course there would be no problem with that, but it wasn't done very well in Agatha Christie's Marple, and it doesn't feel like it's done well here. We obviously do have some interesting issues relating to to queer theory. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, which are touched upon in other friend of the podcast, Jamie Bernthal's book, Queering Agatha Christie, and those are all fascinating, and I recommend checking out that book to anyone who should be so interested. The episode just adds the bits of gay intrigue to the story in a way that feels neither warranted nor interesting. What we have is that Dr. Roberts's previous murder right. has a gay gloss thrown onto it, for lack of a better phrase. He did not have an affair with Mrs. Craddock. He actually was having an affair with Mr. Craddock, and Mrs. Craddock found out. So that's why he ended up murdering them. And then since that apparently wasn't enough, we have Superintendent Wheeler, who is the superintendent battle of the novel. It's unclear why he gets renamed. Suchet himself in his book even said he didn't understand why that renaming took place. Yeah, I wondered if it was like some weird rights issue because Colonel Race's name has changed too. Superintendent Wheeler turns out also to have been having an illicit gay relationship with Mr. Shaitana, who had taken photos of him. And then there's this odd scene at the end in which Poirot gives the photos back to Wheeler and manages to be both understanding yet homophobic at the same time. It's, yeah. it's really not a satisfying scene in, in any way. But perhaps even more damning 
was what they did with Mrs. Lorimer's character. And I mentioned this character beat within the novel in which Poirot is so impressed by the fact that Mrs. Lorimer refuses to talk about what happened with her husband and she won't justify that murder that she committed. Whereas in this episode, we get this lurid melodramatic backstory about Mrs. Lorimer pushing her husband down the stairs and this episode being witnessed by Mrs. Lorimer's daughter, who turns out to be none other than Anne Meredith, giving Mrs. Lorimer uh, an extra motivation for wanting to protect Anne Meredith. But it just doesn't play well and it feels cheap, it feels melodramatic, and it, and it doesn't fit with the story. And especially having just read the novel, it cheapens one of the best elements and the best characters within the novel. And I really didn't appreciate that, especially given that the character is played by Leslie Manville, who does such an amazing job with what she has. Nothing that they changed made this any better. It's hard to explain why those choices were made, I would say. You know, it's sad because there are good performances in this. All right, let's talk about rankings. First up is plot mechanics. Catherine? Uh, You know, I think it's a solid seven. I think a lot of it's very convenient, and a lot of it especially the bridge minutia was perhaps a little bit lost on me, but everything works in it. I actually come out on a seven as well, but for a little bit of a complex reason. I think that there are two different elements about the plot mechanics that are pushing in in different directions, one lower and one higher, but I think they they come out to a seven. Mm -hmm. Often when we're talking about plot mechanics and plot credibility, which we do have to talk about side by side, Mm -hmm. often we have outstanding mechanics. We marvel over how Christy spins so many plays in the air, but at the expense of credibility, right? So we have people doing crazy things and it's hard to explain, but it's kind of like watching a Rube Goldberg invention made out of people and motivations and we can marvel at it and we can enjoy it and appreciate it. But sometimes we have to ding her on credibility because people aren't acting like people. Here, I think we have the opposite problem. I think we actually have a pretty simple and, as you said, even conveniently created plot when it comes Mm -hmm. to the mechanics. There's not a whole lot going on, which in a way is impressive. And this is where I would give it higher marks because it's elegant. It is audacious and it's different. And we, we love giving Christy points for doing something different. But it is also simpler and she is not doing as many things. And I think we can begin to feel that toward that last of the novel where it really feels like she's starting to spin her wheels a little bit and needs to eke out a couple more thousand, if not tens of thousands of words to get to the end. And that's not great. So that's why I think the, for me, the score is pulling in two different directions, but I think it comes out on seven. Okay. And then, you know, I mean, I'm coming down basically the same on credibility. If you were being blackmailed for sport, that is a pretty good reason to murder somebody, especially if you are already a multiple murderer. Yeah. As I said, I think we have a flip situation here where the credibility is pretty outstanding. I would actually go higher. I would give it an eight because I think that humans are acting as they would act. Yeah. I mean, that's fine. The only thing that I don't buy is a lot of the Anne Meredith stuff. I don't think a lot of that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, then this is where we're getting toward the, the latter part of the book where the focus really is more on Anne Meredith. And, and it does fall apart there, even in terms of credibility. I think that's fair. But I, still, there's only one section of the book. And I think overall, credibility does really well. Yeah. Okay, so eight on that. Now let's talk about book-specific characters. And I think this is a little bit of a mixed bag in that there are some characters that are outstanding. Mrs. Lorimer, we've already mentioned several times. 
Dr. Roberts as well. He is a convincing murderer. His jovial manner and then the way that that all falls apart when he is unmasked to be the murderer is convincing. That's not always convincingly done. And Meredith is a little weak. I think that Rhoda Dawes is even a little bit of a weak character. To me, she's just beginning to feel like a bit of a stock Christie character. I'm coming out on a six for this one, I think. Roberts is good. I think that Mrs. Lorimer is really good. I don't like Anne Meredith very much. Um, I don't think that she's particularly well-drawn, but again, that's the also... Lady of Christie, who Catherine doesn't like. <laughs> you know what? I like Rhoda. <laughs> you like Rhoda more than I do, so hey, a Lady of Christie who Catherine prefers, that's something to write home about. <laughs> I think that Despard is a little bit underwritten. We mentioned Major Despard being a carbon copy of Colonel Race, who we'll get to in a moment. He certainly doesn't add much to the mix. Overall, though, it doesn't feel weak, which is why I'm coming out on a six and nothing lower. We can go a six. That's fine. Okay, now let's talk about series-long characters, because the book does extremely well here. We have four of them. Four! Let's perhaps start at worst and end on best. (laughs) So I would start with Colonel Race. He is barely in this book. He actually leaves really abruptly in the middle of the book. Oh, right. It's very odd. I know. He's like, I have to leave England. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Bye, fam. (laughs) It was a little bit like maybe she got tired of writing him. He exits stage left. I don't think Um, Colonel Race is getting filled out much in this novel. But Superintendent Battle, as we mentioned, does remarkably well. And I think part of that... But he's actually pretty... He's pretty good here. Yeah, and I think a big part of that is that he acts as a foil to Poirot. There are a lot of descriptions of his wooden exterior and the way that he just attacks a problem head on. And he doesn't have the same cleverness or craftiness that Poirot has, and he's very aware of that. But he is determined, and he gets the job done. Right, and you know, Poirot really appreciates it. And he's very smart about the way that he controls the investigation. Absolutely. He's playing a little bit of an Inspector Jap role here, but almost doing it better than Jap does it because Jap is a little bit of a dope. I appreciated his presence in the novel and the role that he played. There's also a moment in which Battle takes a page out of Miss Jane Marple's book in which he says that it's wonderful how certain types resemble each other. That's definitely a little bit of Marpelian detective theorizing at work there. So I also very much appreciated that. Then we have Ariadne Oliver. Of course, this is the first novel within which we see her. Not the first time that she has appeared within the Christieverse. That actually happens, interestingly, in a Parker Pine short story. We have not even delved into the world of Parker Pine yet, but we are going to do so for our next episode. So stay tuned for that. But Ariadne Oliver, just a delight. I love Christie's self-deprecating humor. She gets to poke fun at herself. We saw a prototype for this in the disheveled male mystery novelist in Death in the Clouds, but here she's really honed her game and she's just doing it so well. And the great thing about her is that she's disheveled, she's scattered, but she's smart and she really is intelligent and she's perceptive and she surprises us with her intelligence. She almost surprises herself with her intelligence, which I think is probably how Christy often felt too about herself. I think that that's sort of the delightful thing about her is that she can kind of ramble on, but it's not that she doesn't see what's going on or what's what. It's that that just is like her manner. And she is such a specific character. 
So a few things. I think we have to point out that the first Ariadne Oliver title that is referenced in this book is The Body in the Library, which Christie would go on to use as a title herself, of course. But I love the fact that she cribbed from one of Mrs. Oliver's titles for herself. And then we need to pull out this sequence, which we already referenced in the middle of the book when Rhoda goes to visit Mrs. Oliver and we see her at work because it is just a delight, starting with the fact that she is writing a story about sage and onion stuffing in a Michaelmas goose. Having just done The Herb of Death, Miss Marble short story, I feel like that that is exactly what Mrs. Oliver is writing here when Rhoda Dawes happens upon her. So really loved that. And this is what Ariadne Oliver says about what it's like to be a mystery writer. This truly did make me laugh aloud when I read it. Some days I can only keep going by repeating over and over to myself the amount of money I might get for my next serial rights. <laughs> that spurs you on, you know. So does your bank book when you see how much overdrawn you are. And then she talks about how she used to have a secretary, but, quote, she was so competent that it used to depress me, gave me a kind of inferiority complex. Then I tried having a thoroughly incompetent secretary, but, of course, that didn't answer very well either. And then just a little bit after that, when she's talking about her writing process, so to speak, I can always think of things, said Mrs. Oliver happily. What is so tiring is writing them down. I always think I've finished. And then when I count up, I find I've only written 30,000 words instead of 60,000. And so then I have to throw in another murder and get the heroine kidnapped again. It's all very boring. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Well, it's a little bit though, like, well... Agatha, maybe you should have reread those lines before you wrote some of the Anne Meredith stuff. (laughs) And I just love how Christy is so the opposite of precious about her books. And at the end of this whole delightful sequence here, we get another fantastic title, one of her books, The Affair of the Second Goldfish, which might be the most atrocious title for a mystery novel I've ever heard. And Ariadne Oliver says of this book, it's not quite such frightful tripe as the rest. Christy is just having a lot of fun with this character and it really shows, and she's a breath of fresh air wherever she appears, that Ariadne Oliver. Then Monsieur Hercule Poirot, of course, save the best for last. This was a good Poirot novel. As we mentioned, he appears on page one. This isn't one of those novels where we're like, where's Poirot? We get him referencing the chocolate box, which I really appreciated. There's a lovely little interchange between him and Mrs. Oliver where he says his line about not approving of murder, and she calls him out on how it's like he's talking about, quote, fox hunting or killing ospreys for hats. And then he has this nice little paragraph on, on why killing for war, which is when you, quote, do not exercise the right of private judgment is okay, or at least a different proposition, as opposed to when someone is killing for a personal reason, which is why murderers become infected. It's a more in-depth discussion of of the psychology of a murderer than I think we normally get in these novels, and it's appropriate given that this book is so much about psychology. But yes, I think overall this does extremely well and deserves a high score, and I think we are both agreed that we should give it an 8. Then setting a tone, Well, now it just feels like one of those where we're just like, sevens across the board. Everybody gets a seven. But I would go with a six or a seven, probably. I actually probably a seven. Um, I actually thought that the depictions of the rooms, given given how static the environments are, we actually get very, very vivid uh, depictions, both of Shaitana's abode and of, um, like, Ariadne Oliver's flat and of the cottage, even the doctor's office. And Mrs. Lorimer's house. And Mrs. Lorimer's house. Yeah, really, really vivid depictions, I think, of closed spaces. You know, it's funny. This is one where I think the setting is a standout. There are are many settings that are described or at least evoked 
extremely well. I'm not sure if the tone is as much of a standout, though. No, I don't think very much, which makes it one of those weird categories where, you know, normally we can feel like we can combine those. This time, a little bit less so. I will say the writing is a little bit tighter in this stylistically. That's true. This is Christie's 20th book, by the way. This is her 20th published book. And you can tell. This is tightly written, and uh, you know many of her books, if not most of her books, are tightly constructed, but other than that last fifth where things go off the rails a little bit, I think you can absolutely say that about this one, that it, that it is tightly constructed. But in terms of the style of the writing, I agree it's strong. I think I would do a tick lower overall than a seven. I think I would give it a six. What do you think? We can come out of six. That's okay. Okay, then we come to Stuck in Its Time, <laughs> and... We certainly have a lot of offensive things being said about Mr. Shaitana. Right, but, but there is the weird caveat that a lot of those are very explicitly put in context of like, this is what, you know, the English people who knew him thought. That's true. A lot of it is coming from the character's mouth, not the narrator's mouth. And so it, it makes it a little bit tricky because part of it is like, oh, yikes, that's not good. But on the other hand, so much of it is couched in, yeah, well, he was in these incredibly English settings and he used his sort of foreignness, quote unquote, as a tool. And this is how the English saw him. We've talked about this before. Is this Christie or is this within the book? No, I think that's absolutely true. We've had books in the recent past where we wanted to give her the benefit of the doubt, and sometimes we do, and sometimes we just can't, such as in Death in the Clouds, yeah, where right. sure. we have some really racist ideology that's supposed to be charming, and it's used as as a bit of fluff to enhance two characters. That was particularly egregious. Here, I, it really does feel like it's coming from the characters as opposed to the author or at least the third person narrator and that's even the case with what I find to be the most problematic statement uttered within the book which actually has nothing to do with Chaitana and it's coming from Major Despard and here is what he says he says I never forget a face even a black one which oof that's terrible, but you know that says a lot about who Major Despard is, and he's this man who has this colonialist outlook, <laughs> yeah, I know. and who has traveled the world, and who has been that guy, you know. And dialogue can be used to establish character, right. and I think we have to absolutely give Christie the benefit of the doubt here and say that she's using these sorts of statements to establish who these people are and to create a believable world within which this book exists. So. There certainly are elements of it there, which is why I think we have to take off one point. I think we would be remiss if we didn't take off one, but it doesn't feel like it deserves more than one. By virtue of the fact that it's within character, I feel, yes, we can take off a point, but taking off more than that feels off. Okay, so let's tally it up for our final ranking. We have 7 plus 8 plus 8 plus 6 plus 6 minus 1 for a grand total of 34, which actually creates a tie with the murder at the vicarage. But we are going to give that tie to murder at the vicarage and put cards on the table in fifth place, which actually makes a lot of sense to me. Given what Christie's doing here, she's doing something different. She's doing something audacious. I know there are some people that find, like Captain Hastings, find this one perhaps a little tedious, but I think this is one of the lesser 
high-functioning Christie's. If we go back to my two overarching categories for Christie, which are basic Christie and high-functioning Christie, I think that what she's doing here is innovative and interesting and different enough for this book to qualify as high-functioning Christie, but it's certainly a lesser version of the high-functioning novels, which is why it does fall far below The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which is in first place, and Murder on the Orient Express in second. Just to run down what our current top ten is, we have Pearl at Endhouse in third, The Murder at the Vicarage in fourth, then Cards on the Table, then Three-Act Tragedy, The ABC Murders, The Sidiford Mystery, Lord Edward Dies, and in tenth place, Death in the Clouds. So join us next time for something a little different yet again. Believe it or not, we have another detective of Agatha Christie's creation that we have not touched upon yet, and that is Parker Pine, whose stories were collected in the short story collection Parker Pine Investigates. And I mentioned that the technical first appearance of Ariadne Oliver was actually within one of those Parker Pine stories. So given that we have now met our beloved mystery novelist in this novel, we thought it would be fun to meet her her first time out. So the story there is the case of the discontented soldier, which again, you will find within the Parker Pine. Pine Investigates collection. In the meantime, we would love to hear from you as we always do. Email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame or find Catherine at Brobcat. Look us up on Facebook. Our Facebook page is all about Agatha and our Instagram is also all about Agatha. And please do rate and review us. We really appreciate you doing that and making it easier for other people to find the podcast. And we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.